Welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Oz Arshad. And I'm Marcus Thomas. And we are both writer-directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help bridge the gap. Welcome to the first episode. This has been a long time coming, I think, but not maybe in this format. Yeah, we had a little brainwave because we, we didn't actually know each other two years ago. So this this is quite a new little relationship. But um, what happened was we, we basically met shadowing on a Warner Brothers mentorship scheme because we've both done our shorts ourselves and, and whatever else. So on that scheme, we learned so much from just shadowing the directors for so long for 16 months on on gonna drop the house of the dragon bomb already but yeah that's what we did was on house of the dragon for 16 months so we got to see the way the machine works um coupled with our knowledge of directing shorts and things ourselves so um and we're just like we can't just have all this information sat in our heads when there's people like us from two years prior who doesn't have any semblance of what this is so getting that peek behind the curtain is so important because I remember before, you know, we got onto um, the Warner Director mentorship scheme. It was one of the things that I remember I had as a goal, like I need to get on a set and spend a significant amount of time, more than one day or two days, which is what I'd done prior to that on one set. Um, because you just want to see what, you, you want to see what's going on. You want to see how the production pipeline works, how the system works and how you how you get on it. How how, how do you work in that if you want to direct? And it, it just seems crazy to me that you can because there's no pathway into the industry like I'm not saying this through jealousy or anything at all but some people they can make one or two shorts and one of them might land at a massive festival and then they get signed and then they're up for tv and they might they might do a little bit of shadowing um but then they could be thrown into directing tv because it's an easy they're like they're they're marketable but actually they might not have any of the tools needed to to then go and direct because they don't know how the system works they don't know how the communication channels work they 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 might not even know clearly what their voice is so when you've got more experienced people telling you that this is a way of doing it you've got no reference to fight back um and i think all of that can lead to painful experiences or when people go on set and they hear like oh the director shit they don't know what they're doing and it's like they probably don't because they're the least experienced person on that film set yet they're in the most senior position and that's because none of this information is out there so i know we've spoken about it so many times mm. that we i've lost count about how there's no pathway at all yeah, yeah. um i don't know why i said pathway but pathway there's no pathway <laughs> um at all you know when i went into teaching you know i wanted to be a head teacher and mm. uh, you know i knew exactly how to get there uh, mm. i knew what i needed to do and how i needed to move up you know what is the what is the journey to filmmaking and what is the duration? And I think that's the that's the key is that in on a film set most of the other craft roles in the HOD roles you can start as an assistant and work your way up and still get exposure to to the conversations and decisions that are happening. Whereas as a director you're either directing or you're not. So you can work as a director's assistant, but essentially you could be stuck at their house like organizing their stuff being packed up and moved or their internet like it's something completely different it's not the thing and then also you're not exercising your own muscles as a director yourself it's tough we we kind of have these conversations probably weekly don't we so it was it was kind of like what's the point in just doing this over and over and i'm at the point now where I, i'm sure you are as well where you get 
randomers reach out to you on Instagram or or social media and just like, how do you do this? How do you do that? And can you give me some advice on this? And it's like, it kind of makes sense that we can just divert them to this information resource we're creating and be like, it's here. You, you get, you're supposed to get hired based on merit on how mm. good your work is and whether you can do the thing. Um, but it's not as it's not as simple as that because there's this whole there's this whole thing behind it on either side. There's the whole networking and trying to get in and get out there and get, and, and nurture those relationships with people. But then once you've done your film, you've then got to get it in front of people because once you get it in front of people, then they know that you exist. And if they know that you exist and they like your work, then there's a chance that you might get you might get hired potentially. And simultaneously, you need to have the next thing like ready and moving in some way so that you can speak about it so that when you have these new opportunities which arise from all these networking that you can capitalize on it it's very tricky and it's very painful and it's very long but what we're going to try and do with this podcast is to break it down step by step and we're going to start by talking about our first films because every single filmmaker they've got an interesting journey and it's all really really unique their way in and I think for ourselves um, me and Oz we've both got completely contrasting journeys with our first films. So our first films, like obviously you did, I mean, was No Exposure your first film or not? So yeah, I did uh, a documentary called Bubsy, which was around like 19 minutes long. From that, that kind of gave me the experience of like the music video industry, the low budget music video industry, which I then made a short fiction film about called No Exposure. But it wasn't the first piece of content though, was it? And just to clarify, I'm not calling the film content. Yeah. <laughs> So the short answer to that question is no, it wasn't at all. Ultimately, it got me into the National Film and Television School, but it's the film which kind of started everything for me and this little journey that I've been on. I started filmmaking when I was probably 22 at university, doing a BA, like a bit later than everyone else, but that's kind of, I hadn't picked up a camera until then. I didn't grow up thinking I wanted to be a filmmaker or messing about with a Super 8 camera, all that fun stuff. I made stuff in my university course, and then when I was there, I kind of use the media stores as a kit hire thing which I could use for free and then I use my student loan as a wage and I just freelanced for free constantly in London and then by the time I left university I probably had about 60 plus videos um, made and a, a strong portfolio which wasn't just my student films it was kind of everything it was like red carpet interviews festival content music videos and all sorts like at least half of it was shit but it got better and I think that's kind of the key is just making stuff um, and then I was obviously making films at university. Was taste a factor in the stuff you were creating? Well, I didn't know what my taste was. I think this is the key to it, is that I was learning a lot at university, like technically, and I was having my eyes open to like international, like world cinema and things like that, which I'd kind of dabbled with before anyway. When you're shooting stuff, you're having to get like such a massive variety of like of footage and shots to kind of keep it interesting. That bit by bit, you're like, okay, I like this, or oh, this is cool. And then when you get to the edit, you're like, oh, it would be cool to try out this transition. Or if I do this in one shot and end it this way, I can pick it up in another. Like you're trying to be creative and bit by bit, you're learning what works and what doesn't. And that only comes from making so much stuff. Whereas if you're just making like films, it's harder to do that um, unless you're going to, unless you're going to attack it in a much more conventional way. I think it's probably a good thing to say. I applied for the National Film and Television School and didn't even hear back. Then, yeah, I did a master's at the same university for free because I got a first and uh, I made a documentary there. 
um, and then a documentary is the first thing I ever took to film festivals. I'm a full believer in this, that no matter what presents itself to you, you have to try and make it something that you can learn a storytelling technique from. And obviously when you did Bubs there, yeah, it might yeah. not have been the type of stuff that's in your taste, but I'm sure that that sharpened your storytelling tools, right? Yeah, so Bubsy was the documentary that I made for my master's. And um, yeah, I, I didn't plan on doing a documentary or being a documentary filmmaker, but what happened was I literally went to the, the worst university in the country and no one was really serious about making films. And the sound of my graduation film was really bad. Um, even though I I literally brought people out and made them practice with the kit beforehand, they still fucked it up. So when I did my master's, I was like, I, I can do a film myself technically, like on point. So the only way I can do that and not be fucked over by anyone is by doing a documentary. So that's, that's how I saw it. I was like, I want to make something where my film can be judged on story and story alone. Um, and so I got into it that way. What was helpful with that in the end was that I was then following around um, a music, like a music artist for like six months on and off and um, being in that culture. And ultimately that experience directly led to me writing No Exposure, even to the point where I cast Bubsy in, in like the lead antagonist role in it. You can't plan how these things are going to go, but it's it's about being open to new experiences and trying things out and yeah, finding a way through it. And so, yeah, like I eventually got a video producing job after my master's and then the whole time I moved to London for that. And then I, I was writing scripts the whole time, like for like two years, like pretty solidly writing like shorts and trying to do like the traditional funding route for the BFI and all that sort of fun stuff and not really getting anywhere. And it was just wasting time. And I remember I got rejected from like for funding. And then I also I was trying to like move up in my career as a video producer and I had an interview with like a, a big company. And I didn't get that. And I got both rejections in the same week. And all that did was like piss me off in a really constructive way. And I was like, right, what do I have around me? What can I like, what do I actually have control of? Um, I remember like what actors do I have available? Like where can I shoot stuff and how can I go about it? And who can I get on board? And I literally went out that weekend, approached an actor who I'd met at a screenwriting workshop, um, messaged him. I was like, I'm going to write a script. This is the story. Are you up for getting involved? And he said, yes. I went out, I wrote the script, did like four drafts of it and pulled it all together. Probably over the course of about three months, we just set about making it. I guess that was you kind of, you know, reclaiming, not permission, but you just saying, I'm going to do it regardless. I don't care. Yeah, because I mean, I tried to play by whatever the pathway is, but there's so much luck involved in that. Um, and whether they say it or not, they have their favourites in terms of there might be someone who has come up through the BFI Academy and is already in the system and has and is younger. These are all considerations they want to see. To, they want to be seen to be actively developing people. I'm, I'm like from Northamptonshire, so I'm a complete outsider to the film industry. So I was literally coming in completely cold. So why would anyone take a chance on me when I'm literally known to no one? I was just I was basically just a script that was easy to dismiss. There was no heat or anything surrounding me. It was a case of just like, cool, like I know I'm capable of it. Like my writing was good enough to get me in rooms. I remember reading everyone's scripts who I was in rooms with and they were not better than me. Like whether I was like anything is better than another is like that's something else entirely. But I, I believe they weren't any better than what I was. So it was like, why do my films not deserve to be seen as well? And so I was just like, cool, I'm just going to make something. That mentality that you've got there is is unique to you. And that, you have to be a fan of your own work, man. You have to think you know what, I am good. I think that if you don't have that self-belief, then what? Then, yeah. then, then you would have quietly just been like, the system's rejected yeah. me. I'm probably not good enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm yeah. not good enough. So you have to have some sort of self-belief. And 
you know, we do live in a self-deprecating, especially when it comes to art and where you do look at your work and think, do you want to see my shit film? It's a very British thing to do. <laughs> but I think that's kind of it. Is that like, I mean, as a filmmaker, you're very privileged in that you get to make a film which is exactly to your taste. Like that's the opportunity you have. It's like you can watch some of your favorite films. And it's like, oh, cool, great. This is amazing. But I mean, I didn't quite like that moment. But I mean, the rest of it was great. Like you get to make something which is entirely you and like exactly something you'd like to see so like what a privilege that is I think that that excitement is what carries you through because I mean it takes years and years and years to make something it was a it was a a bit of a struggle to make something completely self-funded like as I said I I cast Bubsy who was like literally a friend at that point who I did as a documentary subject I cast my friend um Arnold um who's like a performance he, he does stand up at the minute, but he was kind of dabbling with performance then. Um, I cast an actor who I met once at a, a screenwriting workshop that I went to um, and I'd never, ever seen him act. I just saw his face and I was just like, I just had an instinct and I was like, his face would be great. So I wrote it for him. Um, and then I cast someone who'd, who'd been in a BAFTA nominated feature film when he was young, but kind of take took a break from acting after kind of being frozen out of the industry and wanted to come back. So I cast him as well. Didn't turn up on a day of filming. Um, <laughs> I had to jump in the film myself. But um, this is all part of the fun. Um, I, I still remember that text. I still remember like being there on the day. Like It was such a struggle to get the entire film together. Like Such a struggle. Um, and we've managed to give up, like get someone, my crew, which was five strong. I had a cinematographer. I had an assistant. Uh, we had a sound recordist. And I had my two producers um, who I who I kind of worked with. Um, doing everything else and we're there on the Friday it was like mid shoot and got a text come through which my producer got and he basically said I'm really sorry but my boss isn't letting me have uh, tomorrow off it's a bit of a dilemma to say the least and so like we basically messaged back and was just like so okay no problem I mean we'd literally told him about this to book these off like three months prior so there was no excuse for this anyway but either way it was like um what other days could you do because i mean we're obviously trying to pull this thing together people are like ready to go so like is there anything we can do schedule wise to help accommodate and then never heard from him again full stop i've never messaged him again like i've i've not reached out to him i've not even name dropped him i've not like slagged him off it's just like cool it was one of those things i was like cool and i had a very very i don't know what it was but i had a very weird instinct that this sort of thing might happen because I wrote one character specifically to be mixed race um, and I'm mixed race myself. Um, I, I remember like floating the idea to my producer at the time was like, I I might act in this role. And they was like, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. We should get someone else to do it so you can focus on directing. And then lo and behold on the day, like there was no other way of doing it other than me having to play this single role myself, which was an experience because I've never actually acted before in a film. You know, trying to make a film is just so difficult, and it really is. You know, and it's that thing of why we're doing it. We're doing it so that we can we can get it in front of someone, and hopefully they can see it and they can think that there's something there. Or you yeah. are making it because genuinely you just want to get this story out. You know, yeah. and and you want to you want to tell that story. Or it's a combination of the, of the two. It was a mixture at that point because for me it was I was getting on talent labs and I was getting shortlisted for funding and stuff. But I kept getting told no because I didn't have a recent short film to show which reflected my writing ability and what technically I could do. Because the last thing I had, fiction-wise, was my graduation film with a bad sound. So I literally made it 
like obviously I was annoyed but I made it to take away people's ability to say no to me and that was that was the only reason I kind of made it and I looked what I had what I could do in an effective way um based on my own experience and it was like I just pulled it from the feeling I had when I was following Bubsy around with like shady characters talking about drug deals and shit like as we're going about for the day um and just acting like it's normal just to bring it back to sort of like that prep that you were doing did mm. you think about like what locations you've got did it did it matter that you already knew Bubsy? he's one of the few people like I've, I've met so many actors and stuff and no none of like most of them aren't as natural on camera as what he is like he's he's such a natural it's he it's such an uncanny ability to like whenever he's on camera it's like it's not there and he can't be anything other than himself at all times he's exactly the same off camera as he is on which is he doesn't play up to it is it's so rare and he's so watchable as well and i kind of wrote it to be semi-improvisational at the moment so he could kind of bring himself to it as i said like the i worked with the other actor the lead actor who um was theater trained like did national youth theater and stuff and there was little technical things around being on camera, like hitting marks and walking to camera left or just doing like small actions and inserts and stuff. It would take him like four or five takes because he would kind of be out of position or something like that. Bubsy was like nailing it like each time because he was just so on point. It was, it's, it's like, it feels like he's one of the most naturally gifted people I've ever met. Um, and we did like a day of rehearsal the week before with that other guy. Um, so that kind of gave me a lot of confidence anyway, because um, I could see that the script worked and I made tweaks based on how it sounded. Yeah, as for locations, um, we literally shot it in my producer's flat. We managed to convince a chicken shop to allow us to film there for like two hours if if we bought our lunch there, which we did. The park and the rest of the stuff which we filmed was just close to my producer's house. The playground opposite my producer's flat was actually just quiet. And in fact, it was empty because the the gates were closed so we just hopped over and filmed <laughs> filmed in there it was all quite local like we looked around London for various things and we looked at doing it like permission wise and it was it w- would have been impossible to make because they made it for 800 pounds in total there's a there's a scene that I, I I never forget is it you or Bubsy that gets out while it's moving yeah that's me so I would have made the other actor do that and I think that's why it was a good thing that <laughs> I did it it was so stupid honestly because the first time I did it like I was so like in character and hyped up because we're basically chasing someone to beat them up but the car was moving fast and as soon as I hopped out I stumbled a bit if I'd stumbled and my leg had slipped under the car he would have gone straight over my foot and then that's such a problem would have crushed the thing so I think the take after that I asked him to go a bit slower and we sped it up in the edit um but yeah it was really fucking stupid looking back like it's definitely something a stunt coordinator should have been involved in um now that I know what I know but at the time you just kind of you're just doing it. But obviously, you know, like, I'm not advocating anybody to go out there and do their own stunts, but, you know, the sentiment from that is that you've got to do what you've got to do to get your film done. As soon as you add those scenes in, your budget's going to balloon. You need a stunt coordinator. Then you need then you need a, pers- a stunt person. Then you've got to have a bit of rehearsal with the actor. Then you've got to get the move. What car is it? Where is it? And then all of these other factors come into play, which can then sort of, like, put your short film into the question box of whether you're actually going to make it, because it's just not affordable. If we couldn't have made this film any other way, it would have cost like thousands, 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 if not tens of thousands to do it. Um, just because of shooting in the locations that we did just around London and, and whatever else, it just wouldn't have, it was so loose as well. Like the decision to shoot in that park opposite my producer's road happened on the day. I was like, we're not going to Wandsworth, we can just shoot there instead. Like 
you could never do that if you've got money and stuff behind you because you would have done all of your risk assessments and stuff for the other place and then you can't just change it like there and then unless you do the whole director thing where you're inexperienced and you make a massive song and dance and scream and fight and be like no we're doing it there and then you're the dick director and I guess those are the sorts of things which can happen if you're thrown into it from making that one short to then going on a bigger film set. But so, so, so you said you made that like for 800 quid, right? So just, just off top yeah. of your head, can you, can you break down to us where that 800 quid went? And how did you get the 800 quid? Did you save it up yourself? Did you sell something? Did you, you know, borrow it off a mate? What, what happened? I didn't have to sell anything. Um, just my soul to the corporate gods. I, um, I was a video producer at the time. I wasn't earning a lot of money. It was my first job out of university, but um, I just saved basically. And the way I saw my savings was, I want to be a filmmaker like I'm happy to spend whatever I have in service of doing that I plan to do it as cheaply as possible we I made sure that no one was out of pocket we used Bubs's car for a lot of it so I gave him um, more money for petrol but basically otherwise it was a case of paying for people's expenses and making sure they were fed the person who ended up shooting it it was he just kind of saw what I was trying to do he saw like a few different shorts that I had written um and I sent him this one and he was just game to do it. He was game to give up a weekend. He's got an amazing attitude and that he was like, whatever we have is what we have and I'll make the best thing possible, which is like incredible because that's all we had. But he was like, what I do want is some prime lenses. And he kind of pulled some up, which was like 110 pounds to rent a lens kit for the weekend. And it was just like a Pentax prime lens kit. So it was like a vintage lens kit. So it was cheap. Um, and then when you've got stuff like that, you need insurance. So we paid 200 pounds for insurance. Then it was people's travel and food, which ended up kind of being around like another 200 pounds. And then at the end of it all, I had to like pay a sound designer, like it was about 250 quid to do like, to make sure the sound worked. Um, cause that's if, if, even though the image is like a bit documentary in feel and tone, like if the sound is on point or at least is like strong, then it lifts up the whole film. And that was kind of where it felt really, really important to put some resources. And yeah, that that was literally how the budget panned out. It was it was that simple. So what what was the editing process like? Did you mm. did you do it all yourself? Did you even know about post properly then? Um I mean I'd edited all of the like the content stuff I did before and I edited a lot in my video producer job. So I kind of knew how to do it. But in terms of the film workflow, I didn't. So there was an edit assistant that we we brought on and she kind of was in charge of like doing all of the syncing and getting everything together. And she actually did the first assembly of it, done the assembly. I was like, cool, thank you so much. And we credited her for that. But from then on, I kind of took over the actual key editing duties. And it took a while, like, because I was basically running on instincts at that point. I didn't quite, I hadn't directed enough to know about story in the way I know about it now. Um, and so I remember being stuck on some moments for about two weeks and not knowing what was wrong with the story um, and why it wasn't working. It turns out you just cut stuff out and it works, but <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. What about grading? Yeah, gra I graded it myself as well. Um, like I can't do fancy stuff, but I can make all of the images match each other. I can put on like, make sure the black levels are on point and yeah. And then that was kind of it. So I made it just look like it was solid and then put on some widescreen bars and then lo and behold, it looked like a film that had budget behind it. <laughs> the, the sound mix and stuff, did you do that yourself as well? No, 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 that was the sound designer. Yeah, 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 yeah. We kind of just did it at his home. I found him on like shooting people. I think I might've got a free trial 
well, even Man- Mandy.com as well, they're so good to like find people. Yeah, at like a similar level to where you are, but they're kind of trying to push through as well. Otherwise, I think the other thing which you can do, which I had no idea about, is that you can literally reach out to your local talent exec with like film, like the BFI uh, film hubs. You can reach out to your local talent execs and they will literally, their whole job is to know all of the talent in their catchment area. So like if you ask them, if they know of people, they will submit like a list of people you can reach out to. How do you feel about it when you saw the, when you saw the first cut or the new final cut? I, I weirdly always had faith in it because um, it didn't necessarily feel good as we were making it. <laughs> like uh, there, was, there was good elements of it, like there was good scenes, good dialogue scenes and stuff. And then like the, there's like a chase scene in it, which was done through basically improvisation. Um, and I was just running on instinct and I kind of knew what I wanted. And I remember the first cut of that chase scene, even though it's about like, it's maybe about two minutes, two or three minutes. Like the first cut of that chase scene was like 12 minutes. Um, and I remember showing the my producers like a rough cut and they saw that and they they looked a bit scared. And then I remember like, don't worry, it's fine. Cause I know, I know what it's going to be now, like from seeing it as a big piece. Um, and then I showed them the next version and it just, it worked. I remember when, it had the sound mix on it and I showed it to people. I remember that's when it kind of like landed because there's, there's a moment after the, the chase where it's, I drop the sound out and it just goes silent for a bit. So you've got like a bit of quiet reflection and then it kind of, I remember even being questioned on the slow motion because we shot on a, a camera, which doesn't shoot true slow motion. It was like 1080i. No, it was like 1080p 50i. Yeah. It, kind of makes the image quality worse and the DAP was just like you sure because it's going to do this to the image and I was like no it has to be slow motion because in my head it had to be a montage moment um and kind of have a a sense of like etherealness to it and that's really good because if, if you are you know even it doesn't matter what stage you're at whether you're at the beginning or not but if you're confident in storytelling you feel that in this moment this has got to happen then why not if I hadn't have made so much beforehand and someone more experienced than me is telling me it should be like this or you sure you want to do that then you might buckle but it's because I'm like clearing my taste and what I was trying to do and what the story was as well then it makes you confident making those decisions and those are the sorts of things which you can either be right or you're wrong but like it would have gone badly and would have learned from it (laughs) or it would have gone right and which it did and then you're kind of validated and you kind of you then built your taste further what was your festival strategy how did that work how did you think about and was it festival strategy where you were going to use? Basically, we always had our eyes set on the London Short Film Festival um, and we worked towards that deadline. I saw on Twitter the National Film and Television School applications were open um, around the same time, the same deadline. So I ended up just like submitting a rough cut of that to there um, and then somehow got invited to an interview and ended up getting in there, which is something else which we'll go into later on, I'm sure. But um yeah, in terms of the London Short Film Festival, it didn't get in there. And I think we ended up premiering. Um, we got into Soul, uh, Soul Fest, which is like, a, which is like uh, about like elevating the like black and Afro-Caribbean stories. Um, it got into British Urban Film Festival as well. There's the very weird thing is that like for me, I've made a drama, but it only seemed to get into festivals which catered towards black and Caribbean stories black and African, no, black Afro-Caribbean stories. And that's, I guess that's just my journey personally, um, which is, I would say is like somewhat more traditional in terms of like going out and making something yourself and then it kind of capturing a bit of 
traction, but your route is completely different. <laughs> You've gone like the Tarantino route, right? Um, minus the um, minus working in a video store, you as a teacher for ten years, but then you decided to start off with a feature film, was. Um, sorry, it didn't fall into my lap. Um, when I was a school teacher, I was always a creative at heart, and I never had the confidence to lean into my creativity and actually be a creative. You know, all through my twenties, I just put it off. I just thought, nah, I'm not. I'm not good enough to do anything creative. So um, I just left it, left it. And then when I got into my thirties, and I think I was a bit more confident just with life. At the same time as you, when the DSLR movement was happening, and and you know you had sort of like on, online training going on from YouTube and stuff, and you start watching that. But again, I was school teacher. It was just a hobby. It was just a hobby that I did because you know. It just kept me focusing on something else other than marking books all the time. So I left a teaching career and a pension with kids and a family and thought, let's start right at the bottom of filmmaking. What what age were you when you decided to do that? Because there's a lot of people who are like late 20s and they say it's too late. I, I'm not going to say this precisely, but I was over the age of 35. Which is such a bold move. Like, and you've like your life is like set up and most people like live a risk-free, like, and just kind of, keep moving in that direction because rightly there's like big responsibilities in having to raise a family and stuff right yeah 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 I mean there's so many filmmakers I, I meet and uh, you know they're like going here going there and and you know to me it's like you yeah do it you know you you don't have any I'm not saying people don't have responsibilities but when you don't have kids your life's not your own anymore it's theirs and um it is difficult to try and like forge a new path when you've got kids because they're dependent on you you know you could go yourself without food or whatever you could go without this that, and the other but financially you have to in time's a separate thing we'll talk about that another time but uh, uh financially you have to provide and you have to you know like fulfill your responsibility and uh, if you don't have a regular income you can't do that and filmmaking is not stable in that way um so you have to you have to hustle and again because everybody's journey is different if there's an opportunity you know Sometimes you have to just take it. You have to take it. And I, and I knew that, okay, I might not know anything about filmmaking, and I didn't. I honestly did not know about filmmaking. I did not. I Even at that point back in 2016 when this happened, uh, my analytical brain of film was not switched on in my head. I was still watching films passively. I didn't understand visual grammar. I didn't understand about story. I didn't understand about motivations. Because that's like most people's dreams, right? It's for someone, you know, to come up to you and be like, here's some money. We've got really want this making can you make us a feature film like as a filmmaker now if someone came to you with that proposition you'd be like fuck yeah i assume but i guess back then it was you probably weren't in a position to capitalize on it but you did it anyway which a lot of people would not do and you kind of learned on the job i was in management in school seven years and i was about to move into senior management probably within the next 18 months from mm. when i left and i thought <laughs> right, i can do that I'm a, I'm a i'm a big dog i can do that but um i wasn't i wasn't i was a, i was a little puppy and uh, it was a it was quite a hard lesson to be honest. And it achieved it. It was a three hundred grand budget, you know. It went on a it went on a charity tour around twenty odd cities in England, and you know they raised double that. Did it get any reviews? Oz? Or... Yeah, it did. Originally, when they came to me, they said it's, it's going to be part of the Muslim charity and showing the film or hiring a community center and then letting Muslim families come and have a night and then they do fundraising and stuff at the same time and make a night of it like a night out. At the same time, what had happened is they they managed to get distribution so there was another guy that was who was assigned a sort of like producer and I was reluctant about it because I was like I don't want this film to go out and people to see it because I know where I'm at it's not really a reflection of the type of artist I am because I didn't know the type of artist I actually wanted to be at that moment you know like you were saying about when you were doing 
Bubsing and, and whatnot, and yeah. you were doing some of the early stuff, you don't really know what your voice is. You're still and figuring it out. You're still figuring it out. But then when they got the distribution deal, automatically enters the British film industry, and then you have to, like, report on it, and it has to go out to reviewers. And the yeah. charity did it more as a PR thing. They thought, mm. if we can get this money, uh, this 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 f- film on that circuit... It'll be a um, it'll be good PR for us, and it was great PR for them because in the Muslim charity space, there was no other charity that was doing yeah. that, and it got some pretty bad reviews as well. But it got some pretty good ones as well. Review who to get reviewed by at the Guardian. It was reviewed twice in the Guardian, and then I remember Guardian did a thing at that moment back in two thousand and seventeen or sixteen. They'd done a massive article about British Asian cinema, and they'd led it with our picture. Of, our, mm. of, of a still from ours we put in the press pack. And that's what annoyed me was because it was like, you know, the reviews are reviewing a film that's not for them. It's not for the British public. It's specifically for a Muslim charity tour. Yeah, but it transcended that, which is also not a bad thing. Yeah, because um, I, I wanted to make sure that I had Muslim characters in it where their religion didn't play a part in their identity when you looked at them on screen. The Guardian picked up on that and they said that what they liked about it was that, that there was a woman mm. with a hijab on, there were loads of brown characters and you didn't actually know fully... You, the religion didn't matter. They were just people with problems. Uh, just because you touched on it as well, like to go back, you'd never written anything before. So how no. did your writing process go? Because it's a romantic comedy, right? And I think with that, it's a good place to, I wouldn't say it's a good place to start, but I think comedy can be quite forgiving in in a sense in that like it, it you can kind of get away with stuff because it's funny. And also with a romantic comedy, it's coming to a conclusion in that two characters need to meet each other. Um so the conventions are quite strong. So were you aware of those sorts of things before you were writing it? or I read a book called How to Write a Romantic Comedy. Um, and how did I get onto that? It was because um, Tess Morris, I think she's called, the woman who wrote Man Up, uh, it's got Lake Bell in it and um, Simon Pegg. It's a romantic mm-hmm. comedy. So she she did a podcast. And so she was talking about this book. She kept going about this book called How to Write a Romantic Comedy. So I read that. And then I, I listened to a podcast and read loads of interviews of the comedian who wrote Trainwreck at the time. Yeah. Um, and she was talking about like how she read the Sid Field book, the screenwriting book, and then she read that. And I thought, right, well, she can do that. Then I'll just read that book and I'll just apply that. And I'd never written before. And I was never, get, and it was really bad because I wasn't even getting notes of people like, and this is the thing, the story was from the charity because they paid someone to do, to write a paid script. They gave the script to me. I was like, I can't shoot this because I don't know what it is. So then I rewrote it off that. And I think I paid actually Euro script. And the only reason I came across this company called Euroscript was because they were on the BBC Writers Room. They had an advert on there, and I just thought, "Who's this Euroscript?" And they said, "We'll look at your script for like two hundred quid or whatever, and give you feedback." Oh, really? There was a lady on there I paid two hundred quid to, and she gave me loads of notes on it. And I said, "Look, you're going to give me loads of structural notes, but I don't understand any of this language that you're talking about in it. Like first act break inciting incident. I don't know anything about that. All the cast, you know, I just literally thought, you know what?" I'm just going to reach out to all this brilliant Asian talent because that's what the community are going to know and that's who mm. I want. So, you know, we got, like, Mandeep Dillon. I'd seen her in something and I thought, I want to get her. I got Ambreen Razi. She was in Murdered by My Father at the time, which was great. Uh, we, well, like we said, we got Guz. Guz mm. Khan. And we had, like, Nina Wadia on there. You know, mm. we had Priya Kalidas as well. Like, these were people I looked up to when I was growing up. I, I proper relished in it because I was like, this is amazing. That leadership and those transferable skills that I had... They're the, they're, they are what saved me. I'm sure that if you went and spoke to any of those cast to say what I was like, uh, I don't know what they'd comment about my skill level at that point, but I'm sure that they would they would, they would would give a positive review in terms of my interaction with them and how we worked and got stuff done. 
and that was all down to because I had those skills and it's so important to try and develop and understand that leadership skill because you are setting the tone it's top down you know what yeah. vibe you bring on set is what's going to carry and trickle down right down to somebody who's a production assistant or a runner that's a really important point there because I think that's something which you you underestimate is from going in part of the reason why we're making this podcast is because leadership is such a massive part of what this whole thing is and like when you're making stuff at like an early level you're literally you could be with friends and you could be like in a higher social hierarchy and people respect you amongst like six or seven people when you're literally like being thrown into a position where you're leading like 50 plus people it's something else entirely and if you're not confident in what you are and what you're doing then that one misstep or one hesitation people lose confidence and then you're up against it for the rest of the time so yeah that's it's it was a it's good that you had that skill set and so how big was your crew out of curiosity like roughly it was around 25 to 30 um which was pretty mad um and i remember the night before i was really really scared so even still even still we still sort of like had it as like a you know i tried to get as many mates in as possible because i didn't know anyone one of my mates who He'd been stabbed at someone and he was in trouble. And I said to him, dude, you need to get out of that town and you need to come and work with us. So I had him with us for a good month. He was just working with us. I had one of the heads, wow. of, heads of year with us as well from school. I think he skived off school a couple of days as well to come and shoot with us. Um, so I literally had mates. And then one of my other friends, he, he, he was one of the drivers as well. I mean, our DP, um, Phil Morton, I remember being on set and he goes, oh, I've been to NFTS. And I was like, what's that? What, 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 what the hell does that mean? I didn't even know yeah. what the NFTS was. The National Film and Television School for the people out there. I, didn't, I wasn't even conscious of what film schools were. I didn't know anything. Nothing, literally nothing. I just thought, I saw Gus, I thought, he's funny. If he can make people laugh, so can I. Because he used to be mm-hmm. a teacher and I used to be a teacher. So I thought, if he can do it, I can do it. That's important in itself in that little nugget, in that, like, that's representation right there, right? Because at that point, it wasn't Gus Khan. It was like a YouTube comedian at this time, right? You you go with people that are coming up with you because no one else understands the hustle. He was instrumental, I think, in terms of keeping me motivated and inspired. And also just to work with all those people, man, I'll never forget it. And even like the leads, like Danny, you know, I'm, I'm friends with Danny who who played um, Shahid in it. He was the male lead and the female lead was Asmara. I'm friends, I'm tight with both of them. How did you prep then and knowing what you know now, like what was missing? Like what were the mistakes which you made? in terms of preparing for your first or second days? Prep was just mad. We, we, we didn't, didn't really know what we were doing. I tried to do storyboards, didn't know what they were. I didn't think visually, so I didn't know what I was actually looking at. Um, and I tried to rely on Phil, but we didn't have all the money to keep getting him to come and do prep with us. Comedy is the hardest thing to do. It's harder than drama. It's hard. And the reason it's hard is because everything has to be so precise to pull the gag off. I didn't know any, but I didn't know anything about that language because I wasn't, I didn't have a mentor or anything. And, you know, to people listening, like it's so important to try and find a mentor. You don't need to have one mentor through your whole career, but even right straight away, you might have someone that can just encourage you and tell you like, all right, this script's all right. What about this? Have you thought about this? Because yeah. you're not going to know really if you're good or not. You need someone else. Yeah, like a little champion. Yeah, exactly. You know, so much of our emotion is tied to the work we do. Validation is is a necessity, unfortunately. So how did you find the story in it? Because discovering a story is is like a process of going through and making it and you kind of learn more about it as you're doing it. So how did you go about discovering that? We'd secured some finance with the people to then do a pickup shoot. And I thought to myself, right, I'm going to put off certain scenes Mm. and certain bits. And we've got like a hiatus of a few weeks I'm going to rewrite the film in that two weeks based on what I've shot so far 
and then yeah. I'm gonna write new scenes and then and then and then plug those bits in based on what I learned. When you create, you learn from it. It was a big risk. So that's really without realizing it's it's a smart process in that like because when you have what you have in the edit, that's when you really know what the film is because you know what you're making tonally and all that sort of stuff because you don't really know. You're kind of like shooting in the dark a bit. And I've had master masterclasses at NFTS and one was with Pavel Pavlikovsky who'd shot Ida and Cold War um, or directed those. Um, and he does the exact same thing. He shoots like, he, he says like around half of it and then they break for like six weeks and then he kind of then does the rest of the movie because uh, he knows what it is. And that's his process, and he's that's Pavel Pavlikovsky. So there you go. I didn't even know what I didn't, I didn't even know what tone was then. Um, yeah, I just yeah. knew that I wanted it to be like a, a really broad, like two thousands comedy in tone, yeah. uh, which which was obviously dated for the for for this era. But that's what I knew the family Muslim audience would have liked, yeah. and that's why I didn't want it to go to um, a, a distribution and get reviews because they're not going to see it as. Matthew McConaughey leaning to the side again on the front cover, mm. that type of vibe where it's just cheesy. But that's what yeah. that that's what that's what they wanted. That's what the brief was, and I wanted to deliver on that brief. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we did that, and we reshot. We not reshot. We 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 did them pickups, and I rewrote the film altogether. I think only seventy drafts of the script, and I think that fifty-eight of those drafts it didn't make it any better. But I didn't realize yeah, that all yeah. I'm doing is just kicking about the same bit of shit in the bucket. <laughs> it's still shit yeah some of the um um crew that were on there you know it, it 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 really really is important as a director you have that leadership and you have them connections and 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 you so you make that connection i mean the human connection and you really value what they're doing because on a feature like they were knackered they didn't even have time to like do their laundry and stuff yeah yeah and I tried to ensure that I was I was good and just with everyone. Mm. Um, I remember once one of the people, one of the, the the gaffer that was on it, the charity had they didn't they didn't pay him straight away because of whatever happened with the finance process because they didn't realize like how 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 much money can hemorrhage in an indie mm. film. I think mm. their cash flow they 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 they'd run out of of their cash flow. Oh shit! So they had to borrow money from another entity to pay for this film, right? And they had, remember, 30, 40 staff themselves that needed yeah. paying. And then we had this added 30 staff or whatever we had on this. Um, so the, the gaffer didn't get paid straight away. So what he'd done is he'd mm. sat on the truck on one of the mornings. Mm. Obviously, the director gets there later. And, and, mm. and no one had set anything up. I said, what's the matter? Then he won't come out of the van. I said, why? He's not being paid. He's not going to switch any lights on. I think he set the lights up, but he wouldn't. He wouldn't. He wouldn't connect the electricity. Yeah. And yeah. He, and you know he was such a nice guy. And I said to him, "I said, what's the matter?" He goes, "They haven't paid us." I said, "What's your bank details?" But I paid him myself out of my own pocket because I thought, mm. "Why the hell is he not being paid?" But I valued yeah. that guy. I was like, you know what? Like, he's he's yeah. putting so much effort in. Yeah, he's getting paid, but he's putting effort in. I don't know. He yeah. might have kids. He might. Have, I don't know where his money's going to go. He yeah. needs his money today. Yeah, yeah. To me, that set the tone. And he was he was a great guy. I really got on with him. I think that for him was a turning point. I think he respected me more when that yeah. happened. And you don't have to do that, especially as a director. Like you, you're not even usually told about shit like that. What happened afterwards, I guess, like once all the reviews and stuff, where did you go next? Just briefly, and we'll dig into that deeper in later episodes. I said to myself, I'm never going to, I'm never again going to allow an opportunity to come into my path and I don't have the experience to capitalise on it. So I thought, I don't care how long it takes me, I'm going to study craft. I'm going to learn how to write. I'm going to read scripts. I'm going to write and I'm going to study and I'm going to direct. And then I spent the next few years doing that. That's when I guess the start of our paths crossed because I went to yeah. NFTS. 
and here we are five years later unemployed yeah so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> i think it's important just to know where people start out there's always something to take from it i always used to listen to like podcasts or interviews and watch people's first features because it's always the most interesting thing every day you should do something to move your move yourself forward whether it's listening to a podcast or reading an article or writing whatever Me and you, we started this podcast because we're essentially massive nerds, right? We're, we're nerds for knowledge. We think it's helpful if we throw out what we've been looking at, what I've been watching, what I've been reading, and we're going to call it the, uh, what are we going to call it, us? Nugget of the week. So my first nugget is going to be something that I've used for quite a while now, and it's an app called Speechify. The, the guy who set it up is dyslexic, and he struggled reading books, and so he created this app which reads it for you, and now the app has got so advanced they've got like you can have snoop dogg read it to you gwyneth paltrow read it to you mm. um someone who sounds like he's doing the voiceover for game of thrones read it to you and i absolutely love it and it's quite natural as well it feels quite conversational when they're reading something back to you it's not good for scripts though yeah okay because i guess the formatting fucks it up exactly yeah so my nugget of the week um there's a book that i've been reading called uh david mamet on film on directing film he's obviously a super smart guy, uh, theatre, playwright, writer, director, all that sort of stuff. Um, author. Author. He, he's um, a multi-hyphenate person. And yeah, the the book really kind of breaks down the fundamentals. It's one of his lectures, uh, which he he, he, give to, he gave to his students um, on directing film. And within that, they just really break down what directing is in terms of communicating something to an audience visually like in a really sort of basic way because ultimately that's it so when I was starting I can't remember if I said it earlier on but in my my graduation film during my BA I didn't understand how to communicate the story to an audience properly and that resulted in me having situations where on the page on the script it would be clear to the reader what's going on but visually I wouldn't give the audience the information to understand that they're sat there waiting for a certain person to come in. They're just, they're just sat there with an empty chair and I expected them to know. Whereas with this, um, well, he really breaks down how you have to be so precise and succinct with the information which you're giving and how, um, and how like a flow of scenes can help communicate the information and a flow of shots as well. So yeah, I think that's, it was super interesting um, and it's also quite an easy read. It's super short. I think looking at it, it's like around a hundred pages. So, and it's also a bit of a gateway into the rest of, of, of his, his writing. Um, cool. So I think that concludes our first episode. Yes, it certainly does. I think next week we'll, we'll end up talking about the next part of our journey is, so you've made a short film and what the fuck do you do with it next? And we're going to be doing that through the lens of our own journeys. So if anyone does happen to be listening, get your questions in at the director's take at outlook.com. And we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing or the film industry at large. We want to shape this as a resource for you. So do get your questions in and reach out to us on Instagram, which is the director's take podcast until next time. Keep learning, keep failing and keep the faith. <laughs>